Well, I want to remind you that Jesus is coming back. This is a non-negotiable truth of the Christian faith. But, but the question that everybody wants to have answered is, is when? <laughs> Perhaps no other question has sparked more interest or been more hotly debated. While Jesus himself said no one knows the day or the hour, people have always tried to answer the when question anyway. Maybe we don't know the day or the hour, but maybe we can know the week or the month or, or maybe the season. Maybe we can kind of narrow it down just a little bit. Maybe we can identify some of the, some of the signs. Well, not to worry, Rapture Ready has done the work for you. A popular site on the World Wide Web, raptureready.com, has a page entitled The Rapture Index. Now, on a weekly basis, they assign numerical ratings to signs that appear around the world, you know, things like earthquakes and famines and wars and false Christ in the Middle East and blah, blah, blah. And the higher the rating, assigning those numbers, the more likely it is that Christ is going to return. Now, while not setting an actual date, they seek to identify periods most suitable. The, the, the number this week, you might be interested to know, is 183. Now, almost 15 years ago, when I first discovered this incredibly important site, uh, the number stood at 144. This week's rating of 183, then, is incredibly high. Now we can all be ready. After all, there's no time, there's no time to change your mind, and you don't want the sun to come and be left behind. <laughs> According to the site, the rapture index is a Dow Jones industrial average of end-time activity, but it would be better if, viewed, uh, if you viewed it as a prophetic speedometer. The higher the number, the faster we're moving toward the occurrence of the pre-tribulation rapture. Here are some definitions of those numerical ratings. Rapture index of 100, to one, or, uh, 100 and below, uh, slow prophetic activity. Okay, that's good. Uh, 100 to 130 is moderate prophetic activity, and then 130 to 160, more moderate, heavy prophetic activity, rapture index above 160, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> Folks, we are at 183, we are approaching hyperspace. <laughs> Jesus could come before I finish talking. <laughs> I didn't ask if you were hoping Jesus would come before I finished talking. Dear sweet Lois. Okay. <laughs> of those predicting dates, uh, they often point to these signs. Uh, for example, one author wrote, desolating earthquakes, sweeping fires, distressing poverty, political profligacy, private bankruptcy, and widespread immorality, which abound in these last days, obviously indicate that the Lord is returning immediately. Amen. Well, where were you, Lois? Well, it, it, while it sounds like it was written yesterday, that was actually written in eight, by a Baptist preacher, William Miller, in 1843, as he predicted the return of Christ to be that very year. When that year came and went, he said it was 1844. So followers sold their possessions, donned white rapture robes, and waited on rooftops. I guess it shortened the trip. <laughs> that day became known as the Great Disappointment. There have been date setters throughout church history. Wikipedia actually has a page listing about 160 dates um, throughout history. Now, not all of them are, are, are talking about the return of Christ. Some of them are just the end of the world. But 160, 
The guessing actually started with the disciples themselves. You may remember at Jesus' ascension, they asked, is it at this time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, is this it, Jesus? Is it, is it time? To which Jesus responded, it's not for you to know the times. Let me say that again. It's not for you to know the times which the Father has set by His own authority. You just be about the business of, of being my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Don't worry about the timing of my return. You just be faithful until I return. And yet, even with those words of instruction from Jesus himself, people have tried to guess the day, obsessed with speculation. Some think with the help of computers that they've been able to crack some secret Bible code. They could come up with all kinds of timelines and diagrams and plot last day's scenarios, which are more difficult to read than the book of Revelation, and that's saying something. It would take the rest of our morning to share all of those dates with you, but let me share some of the most interesting. About 50 A.D., the Apostle Paul had to write a letter to the church of Thessalonica to assure them that the date had not already passed, that they had not somehow missed the day of the Lord. A priest living in uh, the second century said that Christ would return at fi- in 500 AD. He somehow came up with that particular date by the dimensions of the ark. I have no idea. The year 1000 A.D. goes down as one of the most heightened periods of hysteria. Many were affected by the prediction that Jesus was coming back at the start of the new millennium. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) The the, the sole reason was simply the magic number 1000. During the months, uh, the final months of 999, everyone was on his best behavior. (laughs) No wonder. Um, Worldly goods were sold and given to the poor or given to the church. I don't get that one. It's not like the church would need it. Uh, Swarms of pilgrims headed east to meet the Lord um, in Jerusalem. Buildings went unrepaired, crops were left unplanted, and criminals were set free from jails. Uh, When the year 999 turned to 1,000, nothing happened. Well, except that the church did not return the donations. There are so many more. Herbert W. Armstrong, founder of the Worldwide Church of God, said Christ would come in 1936, then 1975. He didn't. Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel fame said the rapture would come in 1981. Pat Robertson, a little loony anyway, suggested 82 would be a good year. And then 1988 was a great year for predictions, namely because that came 40 years or a generation after 1948 when Israel became a nation. So Hal Lindsey said the rapture would come by 1988 when that year came and went. He said, oops, did I say 48? I meant 40 years after 67. That would be 2007. Still here. Another 1988 date setter was Edgar Wisenant, an, a, a NASA scientist who published a book entitled 88 Reasons for the Rapture in 88. It sold over 4 million copies. I won't ask you if you bought it. He selected a three-day period in September, and as I understand it, the Trinity Broadcasting Network pre-recorded three programs on the subject of the rapture for those three days just in case no one was around to air it. The subject of the program was what to do in case all your Christian friends disappeared. (laughs) When the year came and went, Wisenot wrote another book, 89 Reasons for the Rapture in 89. I suppose the 89th reason was I was wrong in 88. (laughs) He sold very few of those, by the way. Peter Ruckman said the end would come in 1990. Benny Hinn, theological 
uh, megastar, said 93. Harold Camping, 94. Jack Van Impey has implied so many dates, it's hard to keep up, but the last one was 2012. I mean, there have been so many, he finally gave up and said, it's going to happen. Well, duh. <laughs> the list goes on and on. Big names. Nostradamus, Charles Manson, and Louis Farrakhan. Now, th- those guys weren't predicting Jesus coming back just the end of the world, but there are other names. Even Jonathan Edwards. My Jonathan Edwards. John Wesley, Jerry Falwell, and Tim LaHaye. Another very popular year was 2000, Y2K. Remember that? Would it be global technological meltdown, a speed bump on the technological highway, or could it be the end? Of course, many thought the new millennium would be the millennial or the thousand-year reign of Christ. They had it all figured out. According to some chronologies, the new millennium would be the seventh millennium since the creation of the world, according to Usher's faulty chronology. So it would make sense, in keeping with the six days of creation and the seventh day of rest, it would make sense that the seventh thousand years, the seventh millennium, would be the millennial reign of Christ. Made sense. Didn't happen. In addition to Y2K, another term was coined. It was called Teotwaki. While it sounds like a Japanese motorcycle, it actually stood for the end of the world as we know it. 2000 was to bring it. Many people had Teotwaki parties all over on December 31st, 1999. I won't ask if you attended one. The, the latest date, by the way, that I could find was May 13th, 2017, about three weeks ago. Missed it by that much. <laughs> With all of the interest in end times prophecy, there has come speculation as well about the Antichrist. Who is he? Is he alive today? Some of the guesses that I can remember through years of reading about it are Nero, one of the popes, Hitler, Stalin, Khrushchev, Henry Kissinger, Saddam Hussein, and then my personal favorite, Mikhail Gorbachev, since he even had the mark of the beast on his forehead. Come on, that was good. That was funny. Guys, you should be awake by 11 o'clock. Prince, I mean, uh, Ronald Reagan, Prince Charles, or Barack Obama. I haven't heard anyone named Trump yet, but hey, it's still early in his presidency. <laughs> Think about it. With all of the speculation, I didn't say expectation. I said speculation about the coming of Christ one generation after another. What happens to the credibility of the gospel? You remember the story of the boy who cried wolf? Eventually, everyone stopped listening. The world thinks we're just a bunch of lunatics anyway. And then the words of Peter ring true. They are scoffing, saying, where is this coming that he, and by the way, you, promised? The truth is, while he promised his coming, he did not reveal the when of his coming. In fact, we are never to- we are excuse me, we are told over and over, no one knows the time, not the angels in heaven, not even Jesus when he walked a- on the earth. If we spend our time in foolish and unbiblical speculation, we ruin our credibility as witnesses of Christ. If we are always crying wolf, they will stop listening. We do know that Christ will return. We, we believe, we must believe, in the literal, visible, personal, bodily return of Jesus Christ. He, after all, promised it. All of us who know Christ 
as our Savior, pin our hopes on this truth. It's what the Apostle Paul called the blessed hope. The blessed hope. It's a truth that sustains us, that this sorry old earth is going to be set right one day. Notice, however, Jesus never said, I'm coming back, so speculate about when. No, rather, he said, my father wants it to be a surprise. When he comes, he will not be looking for a when and where committee. He will be looking for a welcoming committee. And until then, he wants us to be busy about his work. He wants, us, he wants to come and find us faithful, whether he comes tomorrow or not. But there is another extreme that we, particularly in the American church, need to avoid, and that is to not look forward to and be prepared for the return of Christ, to to believe and, and therefore live in such a way that we don't believe that His return will happen in our lifetimes. To believe that everything will continue to go on just like it has since the beginning of time. You see, some Christians want to ignore biblical prophecy. I mean, it is rather confusing. It's too difficult to understand. In the introduction uh, to his study of the book of Revelation, Pastor John Ortberg points out many avoid the book of Revelation altogether. They say, what, with bizarre images, strange creatures, beasts and blood, and bowls of sulfur, and people eating scrolls, and bottomless pits, the the whore of Babylon, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, war, pestilence, famine, and death. It just doesn't seem like a very happy book. Ortberg went on to say, you might meet the apostle John in heaven one day, and he might ask you, how'd you like my book? He says, it would not be good to say, I never read it. It was just too weird. That, you see, is the opposite extreme. That the promise of the return of Christ rarely crosses our minds at all. And as such, that hope has no impact on our daily lives. The only dates that we are setting are vacation, graduation, marriage, due dates, or retirement dates. Because we don't really expect Jesus to come back before we die. Just as there were those in, in, as there are those in Christian circles setting dates, there are a lot more of us who are confidently ignoring it. When you come right down to it, most of us don't believe Christ again will return in our lifetimes. Here's my question. Do we want him to? Now I know when we reach 60 or 70, we're, (laughs) come back. But what about when you're 30? You've got too much life to live. Are we looking for the sign of the Son of Man to appear in the sky to see Him coming in the clouds in power and great glory? Are we eagerly anticipating the return of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we have the attitude of of John who said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Do we have the attitude of Peter who said, it's all going to go up in smoke anyway? Do do we have the attitude of of Paul? To to, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord is better by far, even better than here. Does the promise of his return affect our thinking and our living at all? 
I'm tempted to stop and call us to repentance. I'm not suggesting. I mean, it has been 2,000 years since Jesus left. Peter told us in 2 Peter 3 that in the last days, mockers, scoffers will come saying, where is the, the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Are the scoffers in these last days in the church? Are we the ones saying, where is the promise of his coming? Maybe not verbally, maybe not even consciously, but when is the last time you looked at the eastern sky and thought, today, Lord? I'm not suggesting that we start creating complicated charts. I'm not suggesting we start setting dates. I am suggesting that we start living like New Testament believers who expect and long for the return of our Savior. Beyond that, we are commanded in light of the certainty of Christ's return to live in such a way that if he came tomorrow, we would be ready We are not to say he will come tomorrow, nor are we to live like he won't. These are the two extremes to avoid. And if we did, I believe that it would change the way that we live our lives. Some of us would put away that sin that we hold on to so dearly. That we think nobody knows anything about. Some of us would stop putting off talking to a friend or a loved one about the claims of Christ. After all, there's no time to waste. We must redeem the time. We, we, we wouldn't put off serving in the church because we, we want to be found faithful stewards when He comes. And, and we wouldn't put off a deeper relationship with Him because, you know, we might see Him today. We, we arrive at Mark 13 today. Some of you, if you read ahead, have been waiting for this, as, as have I. As I began my study of this passage, I was sure that there would be a myriad of interpretations. I was not disappointed. One commentary suggests a, 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 a few chapter, that few chapters in the Bible have brought more disagreement than this one. In fact, Atheists and skeptics have pointed to this chapter as the reason that Jesus and the Bible are untrustworthy. We've got a lot to look at. Uh, the, the, that commentator went on to suggest that the history of interpretation of this chapter is immensely complex. I found that to be a vast understatement. You see, people answer the, the challenge of the interpretation of this chapter according to their system of interpretation, right? Dispensational, covenant, preterist, historical, futurist, iterist, idealist, literalist, allegorist, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill. If I didn't say yours, whatever. You see, how you interpret the book of Revelation will have a bearing on how you interpret Mark 13. As we go through this chapter, 
I just want you to understand, as we go through this chapter, depending on your system, some of you will like me, some of you will not. Some of you will be confirmed in your interpretation, some of you will not, some of you will just be plain confused. My attempt will be to interpret this passage as simply and straightforward as possible within the context of our study of the Gospel of Mark. I want to remind you that we are in the midst of Jesus' Passion Week. It's still Tuesday evening. By the time we get to the end of chapter 13, we'll finally arrive at Wednesday. It's Tuesday. Jesus will die on Friday. He's about to leave. So he is interested in telling his disciples what to expect after his departure. So these are very important words. So we get ready to jump into Mark 13, which all agree, by the way, is prophecy. Uh, as I did the reading, I, I, I found that there are four basic schemes of interpretation, uh, which, uh, uh, when approaching this particular text, and, and the book of Revelation, since they go together, closely connected. So, so f- for those of you who think we'll never get to the book of Revelation, I'm just going to give you a little taste in Mark 13. Let me talk about those four systems. The the first of the four approaches to this chapter is called the preterist view, which seeks to limit the events that happen here uh, to the past, that everything that appears in Mark 13 and Revelation 6 to 19, by the way, have already taken place, namely by 70 AD, which was the fall of Jerusalem. This is a very popular uh, interpretation of the text. And, and one which is becoming more popular and, frankly, one that I don't understand. I mean, I get it, but I, I don't get how they get there. The second is what's called the historicist view. That is, Mark 13 contains a chronological outline of church history uh, covering successive periods throughout history from the time of Jesus to the present day till Jesus returns finally in verse 30 and in Revelation 19. So it's, this is all happening from the time Jesus said it till the time he comes back. The, the problem with that, or the challenge, I should say, uh, w- with that, is assigning dates uh, or events somewhere along the way. Here's what I mean. Uh, are, are we in Revelation 14, 15, or 16? <laughs> are, are we in the trumpet judgment or the bowl judgment? Or are we still back in the seal judgments? Who knows who decides? The third view is called the futurist view, This one says that much of Mark 13 and Revelation 6 to 19 is still future. The dispensationalist, if you don't know what that is, count yourself lucky, the dispensationalist falls into this camp. For example, the Left Behind series. If you read that series, that's this one, okay? Many hold the events of the tribulation described here and in Revelation um, take place over a literal seven-year period. It's called the 70th week of Daniel, and so some hold the church will be raptured or or taken to heaven before the seven-year tribulation. Others say it'll be before the great tribulation, which is kind of somewhere in the middle of the seven-year period. Others say that the church will go through the tribulation, then be raptured by Christ as it returns to earth. I, I would guess that most of you, most of you hold the futurist view. The last view is called the Iterist view. This is a somewhat eclectic view that sees the events as contemporary with the New Testament leading to 70 AD. There's no denying that, by the way. But then it goes beyond that to include events happening throughout the future progressively in increasing measure. 
I'd probably hold the last view. That is that the events described in Mark 13 will happen throughout the church age until Jesus returns with a special fulfillment at the end of time during the tribulation um, at the end of which Jesus will return. In other words, I do believe in a literal tribulation period in the future. Okay, I, 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 th- I think that is described. How, however, I'm not going to get into the pre-tribulation, post-tribulation discussion in this particular chapter so you can put away your stones. Since many of you know that I am post-trib, that Christ is coming back at the end of the tribulation, sorry the church is going to go through. I don't want to be post-trib, it's just in the Bible. With all of that in mind, let's read verses 1 to 4 of Mark 13 as we set the stage. As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Really? Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us. Look at their question. When? (laughs) When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? There it is. Even they were obsessed with the when question. Everybody wants to know when's it going to happen. Well, Jesus and his disciples leave the temple. Many suggest that this is more than just a physical departure. This is a spiritual departure as well. Why do I say that? Well, we may remember the events that happened in Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11, when at that time the Spirit of God left the temple, and the temple shortly thereafter was destroyed. In fact, uh, chapter Ezekiel eleven twenty three says, The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city, that is the Mount of Olives, where Jesus is now sitting. Jesus is reenacting what happened right before the destruction of the temple the last time. He leaves, and you should know that, in, at least in Mark's gospel, he never returns to this temple again. And we remember that a theme running through the Passion Week has been Jesus' judgment of the temple and the empty religious practices going on there. Remember, he arrived just a couple of days ago on on Sunday. Uh, He came back on Monday, cleansed the temple. My father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of robbers. Then in object lesson format, he curses the fig tree to, to, to... put on display, went away to the temple. He then verbally battled the religious leadership in the temple, putting them in their place. He is now done with this religious sham, and he leaves. God leaves the temple. He's going to start a new one, of which he himself is the chief cornerstone. And you are the living stones. You remember the temple at this time was constructed on a mount. It's called the Temple Mount. And there was more to the complex than just the temple itself. It was absolutely magnificent. Truly one of the wonders of the ancient world. I mean, the complex, this is just a model of it, covered some 35 acres, almost a mile square. There were a number of other buildings. 
and other structures. For example, on the left side of the screen, that's called Solomon's portico or colonnade. There were 64 Corinthian columns that went, I can't remember, I think it's 60 feet in the air. Um, but, but it took three men uh, holding hands going around uh, the bottom of it to, 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 uh, cir- uh, to circle uh, each of the pillars. This was absolutely magnificent, but most magnificent was that which stood in the center, which was the temple. It was stunning. Historians tell us that historians' temple was breathtaking, comprised of huge stones, some as large as 60 feet long, 12 feet by 12 feet uh, wide and deep, weighing up to a million pounds. Josephus tells us much of the temple was overlaid with massive plates of gold, and what wasn't covered with gold was made up of pure white marble. In fact, they said in the noonday sun, it was so brilliant you could hardly look at it. It looked like a mountain when you were coming up. This is 150 feet tall. Our building right here is 20 feet tall, seven times as big. It was magnificent. One rabbi wrote, he who has not seen the temple has not seen a beautiful building. Incredible. Now, we remember that the disciples were primarily from Galilee, so this is quite the sight to them. It's not like they'd never seen it before, but again, they are overawed. And Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. They are incredible, don't you think? To which Jesus responds, you're impressed, are you? Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Without doubt, everyone agrees Jesus is, re, is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D. At this time, the temple was completely razed to the ground. It was first burned. And it's, it, the, the historians tell us that after the burning of the temple, that the toppling of the walls, the soldiers pried those massive stones apart to get to the gold that had melted in between them. Not one stone left upon another. At this point, Jesus and the disciples make their way through the eastern gate, likely across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. As Jesus was sitting there with the Temple Mount still in view, four disciples, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, uh, the first four, by the way, that he called, came to him with a couple of questions. Jesus Tell us, when will these things happen, namely the destruction of the temple that you just talked about, and what will be the accompanying signs? Jesus, when will this happen, and how will we know that it is about to happen? Now, as I mentioned earlier, many agree that in his answer, Jesus interweaves what will happen at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, yes, but also he interweaves in there what will happen until he returns. Lots of discussion about that, but let me let me suggest this common understanding of, the, uh, of Mark chapter 13. In the first 13 verses, we're going to see the end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. Then we're going to see the tribulation. He switches and goes to the tribulation, the second coming, although a case can be made that he's still talking about Jerusalem. We'll talk about that when we come to it. The end of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem again, verses 28 to 31. And then this, everyone agrees that then eventually he talks about the second coming and watchfulness. Don't miss that. That's the purpose of Mark chapter 13. Watchfulness is the theme that runs through the... Be ready. Don't be caught unaware. You should be prepared. You should be looking forward to the return of Christ. Look at these verses. Verse 5, beware. 
Verse 7, don't be frightened. Verse 9, be on guard. Verse 11, don't, don't worry. 14, when you see. 23, but take heed. Verse 29, when you see these things. Verse 33, take heed. 35, be on the alert. The last words in the chapter, be on the alert. Be ready. Which brings me back to the two extremes that we need to avoid. One, obviously, is setting dates and being overly preoccupied with the when of, uh, of Christ's return. And we can kind of sit back and chuckle and go, yeah, that's kind of funny, those crazy guys. But the other is to ignore it altogether, no, not even give it any thought. My brothers and sisters, this is our blessed hope. This is what we're supposed to be looking forward to. Over and over in this chapter, Jesus will challenge his disciples and, frankly, us to be on our guard, to be alert, to be ready for the unfolding of the end, to be found faithful, doing the work that he has left us to do. There are a number of imperatives. Those are commands in this chapter, and they all have to do with being ready. I am telling you, be ready. So again, I ask you, when is the last time you thought, could it be today, Lord? I hope so. The disciples were asking a couple of questions about the destruction of the temple, and I believe that Jesus gives an answer that talks about the temple, certainly, but transcends the rest of history. As we approach this chapter called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus does give an answer but one that transcends the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, transcends the entire church age in which we live and leads to the culmination of all time, the end of this age, when he will come in power and great glory. Simple question, are you ready? Are you eager? Are are you looking for it? Let's pray. Father, indeed, this is an incredible chapter that we're going to spend a few weeks in uh, now in in, in which uh, Jesus answers the disciples' question, certainly about the destruction of the temple, but, 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 but also reminding them and us to be ready that you are coming back. Lots of discussion about what that's going to look like and Certainly lots of guesses about when that will be. That's not where we want to go. We don't necessarily want to talk what it's going to look like. We don't, certainly don't want to talk about when it's going to be. But we do want to obey the commands that appear throughout this chapter. We want to be ready. We want to be faithful. We want to long for and look for and be prepared for the return of our Christ. May it never be far from our minds. In Jesus' name.